0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So this morning we're in Matthew 24. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 24. We're going to look at the first eight verses. And if I can just say that... um, Where we are now in Matthew 24, so we're going to do this little bits at a time. Matthew 24 and 25 is a prophecy conference (laughs) held by Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Uh, It's famously known as the Olivet Discourse. And the disciples come to Jesus with some questions. Uh, So when's this going to happen about the temple? And when's the sign of your… so you're coming back? You're leaving, you're going to heaven, and then you're coming back. What, when is that going to happen? So um, this is already something that from the time, you know, I got saved, and then shortly thereafter, I started hearing, because at first I was like, okay, I'm saved, I go to church, most people are not Christian at my school, but I got my buddies, you know, in the little junior high youth group, and so I live a good life and be a Christian, one day I'll die and then I get to go to heaven. I thought that was it. But then when I started hearing, hey, you may be living in the generation that will see the personal, visible return of Jesus Christ from the sky. Yeah. I was like, really? And all of a sudden, it changed my life. I could not live just a normal, casual, you know, good life but it put a fire in me, and I started going deeper into the Word, and I was interested in this, and it, it is a fire that has continued to grow. So let's pray. Father, we come before you, pray that the Holy Spirit, who has something to say here, Jesus grabbed his disciples uh, at, right at the end of your first coming, right before the cross and resurrection, and you gave them information, you, you gave them a, a course uh, of the future. You told them what would happen. You predicted what would come and what would be the signs, the very signs, that you're ready to come back. And I, I am aware that 2,000 years ago, even though there were 318 specific prophecies of your first coming, most of the nation of Israel was oblivious until after you had already gone and ascended to heaven. They didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't add it up. They weren't prepared. And it was all gone uh, too quickly. But then the Spirit was poured out and the church was born. And so we have continued today. But now you gave us three times as many signs for your second coming. And I pray that we will not be blind, we will not have our head in the sand, but that we'll be awake and alert and watching and waiting and realizing. We're living in very, very special times, and that gives us a special calling. We are a special and a chosen generation. So may we hear what the Lord would say to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so here's the first uh, thing that if you want to write down and follow along with me. Jesus predicts the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, beginning in verse 1, Matthew 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple... And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? So he's pointing to the temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, so tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So let's say if, if where I'm at here, which is kind of elevated uh, you know, on the stage. So this is like the Mount of Olives. And then the, the little right between here, the stage and the first row represents a very narrow, very deep uh, valley called the Kidron Valley. So Mount of Olives, Jesus, the disciples are up here. Kidron Valley, very deep. But then right there, the first row, it's very close. Another mountain arises. Where you are is Mount Moriah. Right in the middle of the sanctuary would be the Temple Mount. So Jesus and the disciples on the Mount of Olives, he looks over and they're saying, hey, look at the temple. Wow, this is amazing. And he goes, do you realize it's going to be destroyed and not one stone left on top of another? He predicted that. And so they want to know when is that going to happen? By the way, it happened in 70 A.D., So about 40 years after Jesus made the prediction. And do you know why? And the Roman army is the one that tore it down. They didn't just break it up and destroy it. They literally removed, to this day, every single stone. You know why? Because there was gold inside the temple. So the Romans said, we want the gold. Therefore, they said, remove every stone, even uh, going down to the surface, so that we can get all the gold out of it. So it's amazing that the Roman army helped fulfill Bible prophecy and what Jesus said. So they're wondering, when is that going to happen? So they basically ask two questions. It looks like three, but it's really two. The first one is, when's when's the temple going to be destroyed? When's that going to happen? Secondly, what's the sign of your coming in the end of of the age? Which is really one question. Jesus skips over when the temple is going to be destroyed, and he goes to their second question to begin answering that. But I want you to know this. Uh, in fact, we've got a, a verse here, Luke uh, 19, verse 11. Now, let's read this out loud. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So what I want you to understand is that, so let's go back 2,000 years ago. You were with the, the disciples back then. Their understanding of those 300 plus prophecies of the coming of the Messiah was that there was one coming. So the disciples felt like, you know, everything Jesus, you know, been doing is fulfilling. He's preaching the gospel to the poor. He's rebuking the religious leaders. Um, He is casting out demons uh, miracles are happening, healings are happening, he has power, he has authority, even over nature, he walked on water. And so now they're like, you know, at any moment, uh, he's going to subdue the nations. because that was the last, coolest part of the whole deal is, he's going to subdue the nations, sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and the kingdom of heaven will be upon the earth. They thought that must just be days away. That must just be weeks away. They did not get what Jesus had tried to tell them is that, guys, I came for part of the fulfillment of the prophecies, but there's going to be a break. They did not know that. They did not get that. And the break so far has been about 2,000 years. His first coming was to bring all the spiritual aspects of the kingdom, salvation, forgiveness, uh, and, and eternal life, the death and resurrection. The second coming will be all the outward physical manifestation where the, the, you know, the earth is healed, the, you know, the greenery is restored, and the lion lies down with the lamb, and they beat their swords into plowshares, they shall learn war no more, and Jesus sits on the throne. That's been reserved for the second coming. Now, Jesus had tried uh, to give them a hint of what was coming. He went into the synagogue service of Nazareth, his hometown, and on that Sabbath, they gave him the scroll of Isaiah. That's what, how they did it. You had a scripture reading from the uh, law and prophets, and they gave him Isaiah 61, and they would ask visiting rabbis, which he was a new early young rabbi, please read uh, the scripture reading for the day, Isaiah 61. So here's what he read, Luke 4, 4, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Let's read it out loud. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then, now, you you have to understand that right there, there's another sentence that goes on. That goes in, so this is all the first coming, spiritual, supernatural aspects of the coming of the Messiah. But the very next part, the next half of the verse, goes on to what will come at the end, the second coming. But Jesus stopped right in the middle, right there. He rolled up the scroll and he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, in your seeing. So that's when they were like, what? Jesus, we know you. We know your dad and the carpenter. And who are you? What are your claims?" This is, they, everybody knew Isaiah 61 is about the Messiah. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Yeah, he was. But even in the claiming that it's fulfilled in me, right here, right now, that was the beginning of his ministry, he stopped. And here's what he did not read. Jesus did not read the very next line, which says, and the day a vengeance of our God. That has to come where God brings judgment on the devil permanently, where he brings judgment on the Antichrist, where he brings his kingdom of heaven to the earth. Jesus didn't read that part yet because that's not what he came the first time to do. So he was emphasizing he had not come at that point to render judgment, but in order to preach the gospel and to heal. And because the disciples missed that clue, they also missed his teaching that my main purpose right now is to die for the sins of the world. They were expecting the kingdom would be established at any moment, perhaps in the next few days or the next few weeks. So then they, when they hear that, they say, okay, so when's this going to happen about the temple and what, are, what is the sign of your coming and of the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus starts answering question number two, and here, here's where we go. The first thing he says is he warns of religious deception, beginning in verse four. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Now, why is he saying take heed? What he's saying by take heed that no one deceives you is that there are going to be people that will come into your life who are going to try passionately to deceive you from everything I've taught you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Jesus is warning that from from right now until I come again, there will be throughout history great deception. And not only is there going to be a lot of false Christs and false leaders and false religions and false gurus, he says, as it gets closer to my second coming, it's going to accelerate and get even worse. In fact, it's going to be the worst of all time at the very end. So here's what I want to say about that. To all of you, and I want to look you in the eye, and I want you all to have your eyes on me for just this moment. Don't be writing or reading or looking around. I want to say to you, there are other Jesuses, there are other Christs that are false gospels, they are false Christ, they are religious, they borrow from the Bible, and a lot they borrow from Jesus. But it's a Christ consciousness, it's a how you can be Him, or like Him, or you're Him, Uh, and and it's not about your identity in Christ. And I'll tell you this, all of these New Age Jesuses, and all of this New Age uh, religious uh, spirit of, and it's kind of like, yeah, we're all one, and we can all be, you know, it's kind of, we can blend all the religions together, and all the gods together, and here's some little inner secrets of how you... And here's what ultimately happens. What ultimately happens in a false gospel is, really, you become the center of of truth and the universe. What you think, what you feel, the truth is somehow in you. And you get focused on yourself, your beliefs, your experience, your ideas, your thoughts, your godness, your genius is in you. And really, The the lie of that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when it's beautiful and pristine and perfect and we're freshly made, Adam, and even the image of God. And the serpent comes and says, here, eat this, oh, the forbidden fruit. God said you can't have this fruit. Oh, he knows how good it is, how sweet to the taste, and on top of how cool it is. In other words, God is holding out on you. But if you eat this forbidden fruit... Your eyes will be open, and you shall be God's. That's what it happens. It makes you the center of the whole deal. And I just, I just have to say this. You and I are not God. Can I hear an amen on that? Do you know that? The answers to the world's problems are not in you, nor in us, or the 7 billion of us. If the answers were within humanity after, you know, it's the year 20 going into 2020, We would have had answers now. Here's what's ironic. We've never been smarter. We're literally unraveling the DNA code and experimenting with it in very strange and unusual ways, and we've never been smarter. We've never had so much power, so much knowledge, so much technology, and yet we cannot stop even the basic thing of warring one against another. In fact, it's worse now. What we did with all that brilliance and genius and capacity is we made bigger bombs and smarter bombs. And now, I don't know if you know this, but all of the nuclear weapons that are on all the nations who have them, we have invested trillions of dollars into that technology. We have the capacity of destroying all seven billion people on the planet, something like 24 times over. And the other people that are starving to death In the year going into 2020, we have the the wealth, we have the capacity. There should not be one starving baby boy or girl on planet Earth. We have the capacity. We just can't get our act together. I'll tell you what, the, the answer is not in us. It's not in our ability, but it's in the one who made us from the beginning. We need to get right with him. Jesus is the answer. Amen? So religious deception, deception will will grow and it will increase. And Jesus gives a lot of other things in this passage that that he wants to be aware of and and to be warned of. And um, so, Jesus begins to answer this second question. He says, there will be the deception of the false Christ. There will be dissension among the nations. There will be worldwide devastation. There will be deliverance of believers to tribulation. And even to martyrdom, there will be a defection of false believers. Some people say, oh, I was with you. I believed in Jesus, but now I'm run away or gone away. And then there will also be the declaration of the gospel to the whole world. I don't know if you know this now, but we, we, are getting, we are getting close to the capacity of being able literally to reach, because of technology and social media, to bring the whole gospel to the whole world within this generation. This is the first time. It's never been possible until now. So that's a good part of... I call it social media. It's, social media can be good and it can be bad. Would you agree? It can be used for good things, it can be used for bad things. What, what they called the Roman roads. The Roman roads of the Roman Empire were built by the Roman military government or whatever... But it was also, uh, most commentators will use the book of Acts and say that the, the early church used the Roman roads to bring the gospel to the whole Roman world within a generation. I believe that what God wants is for us, the believers of today, use the new modern Roman roads, which is social media, to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. And there's some exciting things going on right now. Uh, Because one of the the places, and I've mentioned this recently a few weeks ago, that uh, who would have ever guessed it's just been happening and it's exploding. Maybe the fastest part of the church growing on planet Earth is in the country of Iran. In Iran! (laughs) Who would have ever dreamed that that the gospel is exploding in Iran? Okay, so he says that in verses 4 and and 5, and then verses 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay, so Jesus now goes on to say, uh, between this first coming and the second coming, there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, Uh, there's going to be regional wars, He said, but if you hear about a war breaking out in this place or that place or these countries and that uh, geography over there, he goes, it's going to happen. Wars are never going to cease until I come back. He says, but uh, he he says, there's regional wars, but the end is not yet. And you know what? He was accurate for 2000 years. We've had wars. We continue to have wars and in the future there will still be wars. But he said, the end is not yet. And then Jesus said something, and this is the most important part of the message, it's the most important thing that I have to share with you this morning, because what he goes on to say in the very next verse tells us that the first major sign that Jesus Christ is about ready to come back will be world wars. Here's what I want to read to you. So he goes, okay, so you'll hear wars, rumors of wars, regional wars, don't be troubled, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. But now here's the sign. When you notice this, he said, start paying attention. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The first major sign of Jesus Christ and that his kingdom is on its way. Is world wars you say well how do you you know I where is that the phrase nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom is a Hebrew idiom for world war you know what an idiom is an idiom is a saying within a language that on its surface doesn't make sense unless you're in the culture and you know what they're talking about for instance somebody comes from another country they come to America want to learn English and they're learning uh, the words, you know, thank you, please, um, may I have a glass of water, and they're learning how to put together basic sentences of communication and making their way through life. And then they're with some friends that they know that are American. They're very young and learning English, and one of their English friends points and says, oh, look at that guy over there. What's happening over there? That's so off the wall. So they're young with their, and they go to their dictionary and they go, okay, it's off, which means it's not on, and it's a wall. It was not on the wall because it was off the wall, but I don't know how to take that sentence and put it with what was, I don't get it. So then they share, and you go, oh, I'm so, I didn't mean that in the way that the words, it's an expression, it's an idiom. And what that means, when we say, oh, that thing, that guy's off the wall, or what he said is off the wall, it's what we mean is, it's crazy. Don't pay, oh. So now they translate all those words back into their original language on, oh, something that's just crazier or doesn't make, okay, I get it. That's what nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom is. The, Jesus said there's going to be wars. They're going to continue. There's going to be regional wars. Don't get excited. The end is not yet. But when you So I'm going to translate this. Wars do not mean the end is coming. Regional wars do not mean the end is coming. But when you start seeing world wars, wake up, notice, pay attention, because my kingdom has now on its way. God's prophetic plan is beginning to unfold. So when you look at that, all of a sudden, the 2,000 years ago, well, oh, it's kind of always been the same wars and so forth but really it's not, it's only in the 20th century. For the very first time in history, we had not just one, but we had two world wars. In fact, they are called World War I and World War II and they're only separated by a few decades and they are absolutely terrifying if you know anything about them because in World War I, what happened is modern smarts and technology started making big-time weapons instead of just clubs and spears, and modern weapons started to be used in the very first World War, and all of a sudden, the consequences and death rate of what happened in World War I, it went to 40 million people died in World War I. Until then, you go to World War II, we got even more sophisticated, and some 70 million people died in World War II. So Jesus is telling us, hey, when world wars come, you got some major serious birth pains going on, and this is a sign. But here's the other interesting thing uh, about this. Because both of those wars, World War I and World War II, amazingly paved the way for the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 and the rebirth of Israel to take place. Both World War I and World War II are related to Israel, to the Jewish people, which is God's prophetic plan because when God looks from heaven to the earth, he's really lasered and focused in on especially the city of Jerusalem and what happens with the Jewish people. 2,500 years ago, the prophet Ezekiel, the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel said in the, and he told us when it would happen, in the latter years and in the latter days. And that's a very special prophetic phrase that means in the latter years and the latter days right before the coming of the king and the kingdom of heaven. He's, God says, I will, something like 16, 17 times in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will take my people whom I scattered. So 2,000 years ago, when Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, the Jewish people lost their nation. They not, they not only lost their temple, they lost the city of Jerusalem, they lost their land, they lost their homes, they lost everything, and they were scattered to the four corners of the earth and remained scattered for nearly 2,000 years. But the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel said that in the latter years and the latter days, God says, I will regather my ancient people from around the globe, and I will bring them back to the very place that I first sent them under Joshua to take a land. And it will prove, and here's what's unique about the Bible. I don't know if you know this or not, prophecy is unique to the Bible. There is no other religion on the planet in the history of man that has the predictive prophetic nature. God says this is what I'm gonna do and there's not a thing anybody can do to change it or to stop it or to resist it. And it proves I'm God, I know the future, I predict the future, this is what's gonna happen, how it's gonna happen, the way it's gonna happen because I'm God and I'm in charge. It's very powerful. So God said, I'm going to bring them back to their original. It's never happened that any other people of any other race lost their homeland, got scattered to the four corners of the earth for 2000 years and then came back from whence they came. But it happened to the Jewish people and God predicted it. Literally, he said a nation that was dead for 2000 years, I'm going to resurrect. In other words, that nation will be born again. Just as for you and I to get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said you can't get into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. So the nation of Israel is the only nation in human history that was born again. It was born twice. Now, let's look at World War I. I'll just tell you an interesting story from World War I. The Ottoman uh, Empire, which controlled Jerusalem for 400 years, By the way, in the Bible, 400 is a number associated with oppression and deliverance. 400 years, the Canaanites had been in the land of Canaan. 400 years, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and then after 400 years, they were delivered. And did you know that the Ottoman Empire started in 1517 and had ruled over Jerusalem for 400 years? Well, what's interesting is that in World War I, so World War I is 1914 to 1918, so it's the beginning of the 20th century, the British found themselves fighting against a fading Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. They had a general in the British army, his name was General Allenby. He was charged with troops under his command to liberate the city of Jerusalem, to fight the Turkish and to liberate the city of Jerusalem, and he was specifically told you must do it and you cannot fire a shot, because the Middle East is far too sensitive. So you gotta just go in, take it over, and you can't fire a shot. Well, General Allenby, being a Christian, was a man of God, and a man of he was praying, saying, how in the world am I gonna do this? And he read a book about Bible prophecy. In the, the Bible prophecy was a man who had studied history, and he noticed the four hundred year pattern with ancient the Canaanites and with the children of Israel in Egypt. And he said, Wow, so the Ottomans were there from fifteen seventeen. So mathematically that means nineteen seventeen they could be liberated. Jerusalem could be liberated. And now Britain enters into a war with the Ottoman. He said, I believe, because he was British, I believe God's going to use the British army to liberate Jerusalem in nineteen seventeen. And then in his book, he put a scripture, a prophecy that he based it on. So here it is. It was all based on Isaiah chapter 31, verse 5. Let's read it out loud. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. So this guy said, wow, I think... That, that God's going to use Britain and somehow birds are going to fly over and they're going to bring this deliverance. Well, Allenby, uh, being a Christian, used that uh, as inspiration because there was, some, there was a new element to world war that had never been used in wars before, and it was the very first time called the airplane. Britain had airplanes, so he couldn't go over Jerusalem and drop bombs and destroy ancient religious sites. That would, that would be so bad. So here's what Allenby did. He got the British uh, Air Force together. He said, I want you to fly bunches of them directly over the city of Jerusalem. And then he wrote uh, tens of thousands of little notes in Arabic saying, surrender the city, exclamation point, Allenby. So these planes in World War I are flying and a lot of these people have never seen planes before and they're looking up and here's all these bird-like things flying and then little pieces of paper are fluttering down. So the Turkish soldiers picked it up and read it, but when they read it in Arabic, what it said to them was, surrender the city, exclamation point, al-Nabi, which is similar to Allenby. But they read it as al-Nabi and al-Nabi in Arabic means the prophet. Surrender the city, exclamation point, signed the prophet. They all began on the evening of December 8th, just walking and leaving. The the Turkish army left starting on December 8th, that night, started leaving the city of Jerusalem. By the 11th, when General Allenby actually came, there were no soldiers. (laughs) The mayor of the city of Jerusalem walked up with a white flag and he said, with a key, and he said, I now give the key to the city of Jerusalem to the British Empire. And on that day, Jerusalem went from the Ottoman Turkish Empire to the British Mandate without firing a single shot. And one day. And it was December the 11th when the Jewish people heard that it had been liberated and was now under the British after 400 years of being under the Ottoman Turks, December the 11th happened to be their second day of a feast called Hanukkah, which is about rededicating the temple and bringing the miracle of light back to the city of Jerusalem. So that's what happened in World War I. So from, you know, we have our history and our geopolitical, but God's looking at it from his vantage point. This is all about my city and my people and what I'm going to do, and World War I ends with literally Jerusalem being liberated. So from 1917 to 1948, it's under the British, called the British Mandate. But then there's another World War, from 1939 to about 1945, and here's a, this is crazy. There was this guy that was, you know, and if you know a little bit of the history, uh, this Adolf Hitler, uh, his name means the wolf, and he had this upper echelon that were into the black occult stuff, and they heard voices and they heard direction, That because he wanted the Third Reich. He wanted, for he thought Germany were better, we're superior, we're smarter, we could rule the whole world and have a thousand year reign. He saw himself as a Messiah like figure. But the spirits told him the way to do this is you have to kill every Jew. If you succeed in killing every Jew on planet Earth, your kingdom will last for a thousand years. That plot later was unfolded as the Holocaust, hatred against the Jews, and Hitler was moved and motivated. He said, if I kill every single Jew in Europe and upon the planet, if I can, my kingdom will last for a thousand years. And of course, you know, World War II happens and America gets involved and, they, and Hitler gets defeated and the Holocaust, which was much hidden, becomes exposed. Six million Jews lost their lives. Then three years later, who would have ever dreamed after finding out the horrors of the Holocaust, um, whoops, that, that here, here it's posted uh, in 1948, Israel is born as a nation. Do you follow me? World War I, Jerusalem gets liberated in a supernatural way. Jesus said, world wars are the sign I'm coming. Jerusalem gets liberated. And then a few decades later, World War II comes. The Holocaust happens. The result of that is the rebirth of Israel, and it's posted around the world. For the first time in 1948, that was the first time since the year 2000, basically, that there was... Two thousand years ago, there was an Israel. The last time, so no wonder the church didn't have a clue as to what was happening for two thousand years. There was no Israel. The last time there was a nation called Israel, God Himself was walking on the planet in human feet, called Jesus of Nazareth. So what God is saying is, I'm going to resurrect a dead nation. They're going to come back to life. They're going to be reborn. Jerusalem will come back to them. And that is a sign that you are now in the world of birth pains and everything that's going on in the world is going to be basically leading to my coming. So this is radical. It's powerful. So I want to end with this. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I know in the King James here, in my new King James, it says sorrows. That word is translated in some of your Bibles as travail. If you look up the original Greek word, what does it mean? These are the beginning of birth pains. It, the, it means the, the birth pains of a woman who is about ready to deliver a baby. So here's the good news that I want to say to all of you. Jesus did not predict the end of the world. Jesus predicted the birth of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible talks about the end of the world. The world's not ending. The world is going on. In fact, just like you need to be born again, the world is going to be born again. And the kingdom of heaven is going to be born. Only this time, Jesus is not coming again to be the lamb. He already did that. He's coming back to be a lion. He sacrificed himself once, done for all time and eternity. His body broken, his blood shed. He's coming back now with a with many crowns, King of kings, Lord of lords, to rule and to reign with a rod of iron and to bring righteousness and peace and joy and love, world without end, as he brings his kingdom home. Amen? So Jesus said, look, because he says, look, there's going to be famines, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be diseases, and people go, those are signs? There's always been earthquakes, there's always been diseases, there's always been uh, famines. But Jesus said, no, earthquakes, famines, and diseases will be like birth pains. So if, what, is, what is delivery? So a woman conceives a child, that's not birth pains. Then the child grows within her for seven, eight, or nine months. That's not birth pains. But at the end, in the final, when the birth pains begin, that means the baby that's been inside all those months is now ready to come from inside, outside, publicly, for the world to view. So the kingdom was conceived, and then it is grown, hidden, but it's now about ready to be manifest physically, outwardly on planet earth for all the nations of the world to see. And here's the thing about birth pains, famines, earthquakes, diseases. If they become like birth pains, it means they get closer and closer together. Birth pains do. And they get more and more intense until finally the baby is born. That's what the world is going through right now. It's going through the birth pains of delivery and the kingdom of God is about ready to be delivered on planet earth. Amen. Amen.